Open your Bibles, if you have one with you, uh, or your device, (laughs) to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. We saw last week uh, that the church in Jerusalem was beginning to grow. Uh, The people were being led of God's Spirit in concert. Remember, we looked at that. Uh, to give towards the common good, that it wasn't a coincidence, it wasn't just a bunch of people thinking, hey, that's a good idea, that God, by his Holy Spirit, was directing them to give to the common good because life would have become really difficult for some, uh, especially those who were being baptized, because when these people made a profession of faith, they were urged to go then and be baptized, to make that public declaration that they were now following Christ. No longer were they following the law of Moses. So uh, many were coming under persecution from their families, their workplaces, in the synagogues. Uh, to make a decision for Christ cost something. And so God, in his mercy, had moved upon people's hearts so that uh, as they gave, the people would know that they could come with confidence and be able to know that if they made a decision for Christ, that and their life began to fall apart, that there was help available. I think it's a miraculous, a miraculous uh, expression uh, of God's provision and God's mercy for these people. Uh, uh, wonderful. So we looked at also last week, among the, the people, the new converts in Jerusalem, was a guy by the name of Joseph. Uh, the new King James calls him Joseph. Uh, but it's Joseph, and, and he was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. And Luke is clear, he wants us to know this guy's a Levite. Uh, the apostles had nicknamed him Barnabas. Now, this is the first time that Barnabas shows up. We know that from reading the rest of the New Testament, that especially in the book of Acts, that Barnabas becomes a central figure uh, in carrying the gospel out. He uh, ends up being a teacher for the apostle Paul. He partners with him in his missionary journeys until they come to a point of splitting because of John Mark. They had a disagreement. Uh, and, and at that point, the gospel went to twice the people that it would have when they were together. So anyway, we see this guy Barnabas, and we talked about how interesting it is that Luke specifically calls him a Levite, because that was a tribe that was tasked with priestly duties in Judaism. So now having converted to Christianity, he comes and, and he has a piece of property, he sells it, and he, and he humbly, I mean, here's this guy, he had position and prominence influence in Judaism, and he comes and he lays the proceeds of his property at the feet of these Galileans, (laughs) these Galilean fishermen, uh, there in Jerusalem as they're going, understanding that they weren't just Galilean fishermen any longer. They were men whom God was using mightily in founding this church, uh, the church of Jesus Christ, the, the called out ones, the ones that God was setting apart here as we look at this. So as we moved into chapter five, we saw another couple also having sold a piece of property, also laying the funds at the apostles' feet. However, (laughs) there's a difference with these two, Ananias and Sapphira. We looked at it last week, and evidently their concern was more towards looking spiritual than that of being led of God's spirit. And so as such, they cooked up a plan and together they were going to sell this property for one price and then come and tell the apostles that they sold it for this price and then pocket the difference. <laughs> and they might have been able to fool men, but they didn't fool God. 
I remember doing jail ministry and, and uh, I would be in a room with a, I had 70 to 100 convicts and uh, my pastor and I, I was an assistant pastor at the time, we would take turns preaching. And one of the things that we would say is, is look, because these guys, often they would try to get you to write a letter to their lawyer, or to the judge, or this or that, and we, you know, that our policy was that we kept our hands off of that. We were there to minister the gospel. But one of the things that we'd share is, look, you can con me, you could present all kinds of things to me, but you're never going to con God. You will not fool God. And God wasn't fooled by this couple at all. Uh, Peter, hearing from the Lord, remember we talked about, he gets a word of knowledge. <laughs> and, and, and God shows him uh, that what these people's hearts were like. And he calls them out on it and accuses them of lying. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And um, God immediately judged them for it. Both of them, both Ananias at first, he, he came by himself, laid his gift at the apostles' feet, and, and Peter had that to say to him. And, and he fell dead. On the spot, um, his wife came after, and, and Peter said, "Did you know about this?" And she said, "Yeah." She didn't know that her husband was had gone, had was dead, and she ended up dying as well. So this was a jolting chastisement from God, and, and it would have quickly become known. I mean, word of this would have spread like wildfire through the crowds there in Jerusalem. I mean, this is a big deal. Um, God was making it clear. Uh, through these events, that he was calling people not to just act set apart, but to be set apart. And that's the same today. Yeah, we are under grace, and yeah, we are broken, and we blow it in all kinds of ways. And when that's a willful, intentional, ongoing act that I'm going against what the Holy Spirit has laid out for me, I'm looking for God's chastisement. And he will. He does. He chastens those whom he loves. Hebrews 12 tells us. So, uh, he wouldn't, here in this case, he wouldn't, he wouldn't allow these sinful practices to, to go unchecked within this church that was just being birthed. Very, very important that the people understood the parameters of discipleship. And this was a very vivid demonstration of those parameters. Folks, because we're under grace, and, and we are, I love being bathed in the grace of God. I love knowing that, that my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. I love knowing that God loves me because he chooses to love. That that's the case should never, ever negate the fact that I need to have an understanding that God is holy and he must be regarded in that way. So in one sense, the account of Ananias and Sapphira, it's similar to an Old Testament account that we see uh, of a couple of guys, the sons of Aaron named Nadab and Abihu. <laughs> you may know the story, but they too had, re- they received an immediate lethal chastisement from God. Uh, in Leviticus 10, uh, I'll read the first three verses. Uh, it says this, says Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense in it, on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. Now, the speculation that they were drunk, that they'd been drinking, or and they were clearly out of God's will, the way that they went about it, they were doing the right thing, but the wrong way. And it became a profane offering. It says, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And, I mean, and the people standing around, they just see this <laughs> fire come down from God, and these guys are toast. Okay, pun intended. But I mean, they're done. 
Uh, and <laughs> it says, and Moses and Aaron said to Aaron, he it says, uh, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all people, I must be glorified. Same thing going on here in Jerusalem with Ananias and Sapphira. The holiness of God must be kept in place. It must be seen. And when it comes to the body of Christ, we see here, this is the first example of, you could call it church discipline. We could go into a whole thing in Matthew 18. I don't want to take the time this morning where church discipline is a real thing. We are to keep the body pure when there's ongoing willful sin. We talked about a couple of examples last week uh, from 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about the guy that was had a sexual relationship with his stepmother and and he says, you know, your boasting isn't good. You could let this guy continue to think, oh, we're so gracious. They had neglected the holiness of God. And then we looked at in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul addresses the way that they were coming to the Lord's table and their love feasts and saying, you're doing this wrong. You come, you get drunk, you come and you pour out. You don't even pay attention to the people that don't have anything. And he's very, very clear that there are parameters that we must understand the holiness of God as we go forward and we walk in his grace. In both cases, we see people doing the right thing, but with a wrong heart. And they made a profane offering before the Lord. So it can become easy for us to begin to relate to God as our Abba Father, and we should. We, when we studied the book of Romans, we, we saw the spirit within us cries out Abba, which means Papa, Abba, Father. And, and, and that is absolutely true. We see in the book of Hebrews that we can come boldly before the throne of grace to find help and, and, and mercy and grace in time of need. All of those are true. And he's holy. Hebrews 12 uh, tells us, therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Do you see both sides? I mean, God, he is an infinite, holy, infinitely holy, which means purity as relates to infinity. We can't conceive of that, but he is holy. He has declared us holy. We looked at that. We looked at what it is to be sanctified. The moment of my conversion, the moment I gave my life to Christ, the moment I turned from my sinful life and I embraced Jesus, I was declared holy. Uh, even the word Christian means holy one. And so what, what we see here is God is establishing parameters for the early church that an aspect of holiness must be seen. It says in verse 11, uh, so, so great fear as a result of this came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. So a healthy dose of fear, that of reverence and awe, like we read in Hebrews, with regard to the fact that God is holy, infinitely pure, was a good thing for the people then. And it's a good thing for us to understand as well now. So as we look at the text we're going to get into this morning in verse 12, we read, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Remember Solomon's portico. That was that long shaded area, covered area that ran the flank of the eastern side of the temple mount in the temple, in that, the temple precincts. And it was an area where they could go and, and get out of the sun. And, and it was a huge area. So, uh, here, there's three things going on in Jerusalem that are the result of the apostles' boldness. Remember last week we talked about it. They prayed for boldness, and now here they are. They are walking boldly. 
They're going into the temple every day and they are not missing words. They are talking directly to the people. They're, they're using the signs and the wonders and miracles. They had a point. They, they weren't, it wasn't Holy Ghost talent show like I've mentioned before. It wasn't, let's just go and see all of these things. But they were attracting the people because God can bend the laws of nature whenever he wants. He owns them. He created them. He, un, he understands physics way beyond our understanding of physics. And so he was bending the laws of physics so that he could get people's attention. Why? Because only God could do that. And so the people are coming and they're coming by the multitudes. <laughs> they're coming by the droves and they're coming from the surrounding region now because word is just flashing through the population. So the three things that we see that are going on as a result of the apostles' boldness as they're proclaiming the gospel, as these miracles and signs and wonders are pointing to the one whose they are, is the, first, the church had absolutely, the first thing we see, they had absolutely refused to allow the threats of persecution to silence it. No, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And that's what we saw in chapter 4, the first time the men were arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin, taken before the council. The second thing we see here is that believers were giving generously and the people of Jerusalem were giving, they were getting confident that they would be cared for if they were ostracized, as I mentioned, by their families because they were baptized. The third thing we see here is that as, as a result of Ananias and Sapphira, a strong fear of God was keeping hypocrisy from eroding their faith and compromising both the purity and the integrity of the church. Very important. In the midst of these things, the power of the Spirit continued to work miracles among them and was drawing a great many to Christ. Every day, we're told, there was a huge public gathering held in the shade of Solomon's portico, and smaller gatherings were beginning to meet in houses throughout the region. We'll talk about that in a bit. In verse 13, he says, Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Interesting. The people are going, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. I heard that rumor about those two people that died and people that wanted to conceal their sin. That would be their attitude. But the others were saying, you know, maybe I need to consider what's going on in my life. Maybe I need to repent of my sin and embrace Christ. Either side, both sides, though, were told. And remember, we looked at in chapter Four, that, that they had great grace with the people. And what that means is that the people had great favor towards the apostles, towards the people who were converting to Christianity. Whether they converted or not, at this time, there wasn't a big issue there. They were really popular, is what's being said here. Uh, huge crowds gathered at the temple. Many were coming to see the miracles, watching the apostles heal the sick and cast out evil spirits. As the crowds grew, the people were attentive to as the apostles spoke. Because again, it was always, and folks, when we do something as a church, when we, when we get involved in something, it's always a bridge for the gospel. And when it stops being a bridge to share the love of Christ, whether it's food or it's coming alongside someone that's sick or whatever it is, then we need to be mindful of the fact that God will use us and he will use the things that we do, the, the, the things that we participate in to use and use that to, to reach out, to show and demonstrate his love to an unbelieving world. And that's part of how he operates. It's how he's operating here in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. It's how he operates with us. Always need to be mindful. Otherwise, we're just being benevolent. Otherwise, we're just being good people. 
And, and the church has a reputation of being good people in the world. And, and I'm glad that we have a, a, that reputation, but it needs to go further than that because people need to see the motivation behind the deeds that we have. So, yeah, people were deliberately staying away because they were frightened by what was taking place. But also Luke points out the prevailing attitude in the, the city that wasn't hostile towards these followers of Jesus. Uh, they were viewed with great respect, even admiration. The people were observing the signs and the wonders and the miracles. They were seeing the generosity they had towards others. They were, they were seeing firsthand the newfound joy. I, folks, I remember it'll be 40 years next year since I gave my, my heart to Christ. And I remember the first thing that I saw in my own heart, in my own life, was that, that I was just... I was so stinking happy that it was obnoxious. <laughs> you know, it just, I was just filled with the joy of the Lord. And, and it was like, I know, I know that's a big problem. I know the tire blew. I know that whatever it was, it was like, praise the Lord. And, and, <laughs> and it was just amazing to me that, that that shift could go on in my own heart because I was a pretty grouchy, very angry, uh, in, some time, in some ways, very rage-filled young man. And God began to transform my heart. And what we're seeing here is that people, they're seeing the things that are going on in these people's lives. Um, and folks, I totally believe that a changed life changes a life. As people see the change that God has wrought in my heart or in your heart, and, and don't think they're not watching. Don't think that, that, that especially the unbelieving members of our families or people within our sphere, don't think that they don't watch every move because they do. And, and I found sometimes the people that are the most agitated are the people that are the closest to the kingdom of God because they're having to actively put up a wall. They're having to actively fight against the word of God, the work of God that's going on. Be encouraged. If you're dealing with ordinary people, Jesus said it was going to happen that way. Be encouraged. Continue to love them. Uh, the Bible tells us it's easy to love people who are lovable. Where the real test comes is when God presses me to love that person that I would just as soon not even look at. And, and you know, I know it's not just me. We all have people in our lives that are like that. Uh, and if we haven't, we have at some point or we will at some point. Let it be the love of God that compels you, that drives you forward, that drives you to love that person that otherwise would not be so lovable. So the people around them in Jerusalem, the, the unbelievers and the believers alike, they're seeing this radical change that's coming about. I mean, this is a huge deal. This is a huge shift in their culture, their society, in the spiritual landscape. Things were going on and it was, it was growing exponentially as every day went by because the crowds were getting bigger and now people are coming from all over. It's a notable transformation taking place in the lives of these new, new believers and those around them were seeing it. Now, people were also aware that it was dangerous to join them. And it, was, it wasn't a secret that the high priests and the religious leaders of their day were adamantly opposed to them. And we know that. We know that. We saw that. That started back when Jesus himself was walking the earth, when he was in Jerusalem, when he would be in different areas, and they opposed him. And Jesus had told his men, he said, look, they're going to oppose you because they oppose me. Understand that. Let that be a settled issue. When people oppose you, it's not you. 
It, it, it may be the light of Christ that's shining through you. And there have been times where, I, folks, I don't even have to open my mouth. If someone knows I'm a Christian, I don't like it. Why? Because light exposes darkness. The Gospel of John is very clear. This is free, by the way. It's not in my notes. The, the Gospel of John is clear that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And when you come and the light of Christ is shown on people's hearts, and you, you may be being loving, you may be being kind, you may be being you know, generous, whatever it is, and, and people, they just, they just can't stand it. I was going to read an article that I thought, I just don't have time. I got a lot of ground to cover this morning that I came across that was just visceral hatred for Christians. And I thought, my goodness, it's kind of like what Peter said when he was before the council the first time. He says, if we're guilty for helping some guy that was lame and now he can walk, then I guess we're guilty. If that's the accusation, then we're guilty. Because it's true. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why is the world so hostile towards the people of God? Why is the world so hostile towards Christians? Because we have light. Because we have the light of Christ. No, we're not perfect. We're not anything but. And yet we understand the grace of God being extended to our lives. And as we walk in that grace, as we extend that grace, not validating sin, but as we're loving people, I'll tell you what, there are people that, that, that go both directions with that. Verse 14, and the believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women so that they brought them sick. Uh, they brought the sick out onto the streets and laid them on beds and couches. That's <laughs> no, not a sofa. Uh, on beds and couches uh, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Now, some people get, take a really weird interpretation of this. It's actually really practical. Um, and, and you can see that, that people... Being people, they, I, I read all kinds of weird things when I study some of these things. At any rate, the word multitudes here is the word, the, the Greek word is plethos. It's where we get the word plethora. And if you understand what a plethora, it's an excessively large amount. And so when he's talking about multitudes, he's talking about there's a huge amount, an excessively large amount of believing ones, men and women, who are being added to the Lord. Uh, Jerusalem, as well as the surrounding region, as I mentioned, they were being stirred by what was happening. This was something, this was a movement that was really, it, it had ignited on the day of Pentecost, but now it's on fire. And now it is just spreading through the, the population. People were coming to faith in the healing power of Jesus, and that was widespread. Uh, the numbers of those being brought for prayer uh, it grew so large it became impossible to pray for each one individually. There's only 12 guys. And, and that's if you count Matthias, different story. That there's only 12. And, and, and now you have thousands of people that are coming and wanting to be ministered to. And so uh, they were strategically placing their loved ones along the route that Peter would walk every day from uh, as he went to and from the temple. Some were probably waiting for hours because they, they and, and in doing that, they brought them on small beds or cots uh, for because they wanted some place for the people who were sick to lie on. People who were lining the streets, hoping for prayer, the touch even of a hand or, or uh, being close enough for Peter's shadow to pass over them because they believed that it might serve as a substitute for his hand being laid on them. They were desperate to get to the apostles. Why? 
because the power of God was manifest with these men and he was pouring out his spirit in abundant measure on any who would come. Verse 16, and also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now the word all here, it means all. Every one of them. Uh, the Greek word, it, it's actually strengthened from the original. There's one word that's used for the word all, and this is like, this word all means everybody. It means the whole bunch. It's a complete number. It's a strengthened word. I'm not going to go further into it, but take my word for it. When it says they were all healed, they were all healed. But I want to look at the parallels. You know, none of this was new to the apostles. Uh, They they had watched Jesus minister during that three and a half years or so, uh, and the same conditions came about while he was traveling around. Uh, in, in Mark, I'll just go to one. There are a number of passages that, that have the same sort of flavor to them. I'll just use one as an example. In Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 53 to 56, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee. And they just crossed over the sea. He'd walked on water and done all that. Uh, it says that in verse 53 that when they had crossed over the sea, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And ran through, uh, <laughs> they ran through that whole surrounding region. It began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wh- wherever they heard he was. And wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. The same thing. It wasn't just some, God's heart was to to heal all that were brought. I want to notice too that Luke's emphasis in this section, in this passage, it's on the signs and wonders and miracles. And and that's very clear. But I want to also bring up that comes with an assumption. We saw in chapter one, chapter two, that the signs and the wonders and the miracles were always there to attest to the power of God for salvation. They were there to attest to the message. They were there to point the way to Jesus, the Messiah. They were never, ever, ever as an end to themselves. Peter also has been really clear that he's not the source of these miracles. He would always point that the source was Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ. In that, as these people are coming, as these miracles are taking place, the assumption that and the apostles used that, and then they would preach the gospel. We'll, we'll look at the preaching and teaching that went on as we get towards the end of the, the section here today. But remember, uh, Peter, he says, look, it's not me. You know, I might be a vessel through which God is working, but it's not me. God is the one to will and to do according to his good pleasure, and he's using, he chose us, common fishermen from Galilee, and folks, he'll choose you if you're willing. If He doesn't look for us to have great ability. He looks for availability. Are you willing? Are you willing to be used? Are you willing to be a tool in the master's hand? Are you willing to lay your life down that he would take it up and use it? Those are good questions. And they're questions that all of us have to deal with. In this, I mean, you look at what's going on with the people. They're, they're flooding the streets and, and laying the sick along the way and, and all of that. Um, it's no wonder that the crowds are huge. 
it's no wonder that the religious leaders saw this. This is getting out of hand. I mean, they would look out and, and see what was going on every day with these guys. And, and they just couldn't wait any longer to stop this mass movement toward Jesus. They, had, they were done. They'd had it. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up. That means he, it was like he, he said, I've had enough. And all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. They were ticked. They were done. They laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common or the public prison. So the high priest here, as I mentioned before, he was the leader of the council of elders that was known as the Sanhedrin, 71 of the most powerful men in the nation. Uh, they were the ones that Peter and John and the, the formerly lame man had been taken before that we looked at in chapter four. Now, some of the council members were, they were part of a sect called the Sadducees. Uh, some were Pharisees and they had very substantial differences theologically in the way that they looked at things. Sadducees did not look at anything in the supernatural as being validated. They, 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 they grated their teeth at any thought of the resurrection. They just, they, they refused it. They refuted it. Pharisees, on the other hand, believed in the resurrection. The Pharisees were more conservative in their approach. Even though they were off, uh, they were more aligned with the law of Moses in its entirety, where the Sadducees looked only at the Torah, the first five books, and that was it. They, they, they didn't even observe the prophets. So anyway, so it says that the, the sect of the Sadducees here in verse 17, and they were filled with indignation. Well, during Roman rule, the Sadducees held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin. Uh, uh, and, and they didn't take well to this Jesus character. On top of that, uh, as the apostles' authority and influence grew, their authority and influence was being diminished. And they knew it. They saw it. And, and they hated it. True Holy Spirit ministry leads to conversion uh, on the one hand, but it also leads to bitter opposition on the other. So it was here, so it is in our world today. I look at what's going on out there in our nation right now, this minute, with the decision on Friday, with Roe versus Wade being overturned. And I celebrate that children's lives will be spared through that. The deep divisions... And I look at it as deep divisions between good and evil. Deep divisions between people who are led of God's spirit and people who are not. Bitter opposition. Uh, deep, deep opposition. The Apostle Paul speaks of this dynamic in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, he says in verse 14, he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. I love the way that that's put. It's like he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge. I mean, that that's just a wonderful term. However, it has two sides to it, like we're talking about. It says, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. He says, who's sufficient for these things? Rhetorical question. That's why to the apostles, what they were doing was obedience. They were simply being obedient to their master. To the religious leaders, it was utter defiance. 
Look at those men. Those men are so defiant. They, those lawbreakers, we told them, don't you speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And look at them every day. Look at these huge crowds. We've had it. Interesting too, that this time the leaders didn't act with the same level of caution <laughs> as we saw at the beginning of chapter four. Remember it says they went and they laid hands on him and they grabbed him and they took him away. Here, they're making a public display of power. They arrested all of the apostles, not just Peter and John, put them in the public jail. Rather than holding them in a private cell there on the temple mount, in the temple complex. And they did this because they were wanting to telegraph a message to the people. They wanted the entire city to hear about this arrest. And their intention was to frighten, to weaken the church by removing their leaders. Political strategy, political wrangling that's going on. I mean, we see a lot of that, again, in our world today. You look out and you go, oh my goodness. Look at what's going on. They wanted to warn the general population, the leaders did, that this new faith would not be tolerated. Their goal was to stop the spiritual awakening. They did not want to see it continue. It was getting out of hand. All of these people coming, all these people abandoning Judaism. When they abandoned Judaism, guess who were no longer their leaders? Guess who no longer had power over their lives? But, I love that. The, the Verse 19 starts with the word, but. <laughs> um, I, I, when I read things like this, I, I, I think we should read, but, and then here, you know, like some trumpets going, da, 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 <laughs> because God's not going to have this. They're not going to, they're not going to succeed. It says, but at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What a great statement. Now, all right, guys. (laughs) Now get back out there, get back to work and, and keep talking. I look at this too. I think so much for the plans of the religious leaders. (laughs) This whole thing, it was about to become what we would call in our day a public relations disaster. I mean, they were, their plans were getting totally foiled. The other thing I think about too, because, you know, I look at this as I'm studying, preparing, uh, and and I I sit back sometimes and I just ponder, I I think things that make you say, huh. And and I, I was looking at this, nobody, not the apostles, not Luke in writing this, nobody seems to be surprised that the angel appears. It's like the angel shows up, opens the doors, leads them out, tells them to go stand in the temple and keep on talking. And the apostle's response, oh, okay, good enough, thanks. <laughs> it doesn't tell us, they were like leaping and dancing or idiot. Did you see what, we, what I saw and all of that? And, and there was probably some aspect of that going on. It's not recorded for us. I just think it's interesting. Verse 21, And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him called, uh, came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So you got two things going on here. You got first the apostles, they walk out of the prison and into the temple <laughs> and they begin to teach. First thing in the morning, by the way, uh, when they open the doors. At the same time, the high priest calls a meeting with the rest of the Sanhedrin, and he doesn't know the men had been set free. Uh, And he sends the officers, he says, go, get those guys out of the jail and bring them to me. Bring them to us. We want to talk to them. We want to interrogate them again. (laughs) And so uh, the other thing I think about this is you have to wonder, 
What was the crowd thinking uh, there on the Temple Mount that, that were there when the, the apostles got up and began to boldly speak once more? They're, they're like, didn't we see them get hauled off? Yes, they went to jail. I saw the, you know, they would have been baffled. They were like, what's going on here? I think that they knew what was going on. And I have little doubt that as the word of (laughs) these men's release got around, that the whole city would have understood that this was yet again, another miraculous sign and wonder, which confirmed God's approval of the apostles teaching about Jesus that God uses these guys in imprisonment. The angel shows up, sets them free, says, get back to work and go and continue to preach. And as a result, the people marvel at what's going on. Verse 22, but when the officers came and didn't find them in the prison, they returned and reported saying, indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside the doors, (laughs) before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. I love this scene. Now, when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. When it says they wondered, it, it, it essentially is saying they were confused. They were like, what on earth is happening here? What's this? What is, what's happening right now? And, and what's coming? <laughs> essentially is their mindset. Um, as they try to process what's taking place, they are truly baffled, uh, trying to figure out where's this going? What's going to happen next? In verse 25, so one came and told them saying, look, the men whom you put in prison and standing in the temple and teaching is standing, are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Those guys that you had thrown in the clink last night, they're out doing it again and boldly teaching the people. And for the religious leaders, I mean, think about it from their angle. Things are going from bad to worse here. What are we going to do now? And not only were the men not in prison, they're back doing what they had been arrested for. (laughs) Verse 26 of the captain went uh, with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. So the cops (laughs) go back out. The captain captain of the temple guard, the temple guard was a police force for the temple mount in the first century. And so the cops go back out and they grab these guys, but they, are, they do it really nicely this time because uh, they, they knew that the people's favor was towards them, towards the apostles. Uh, they, and so they come and they ask these guys, say, you know, come with us. They don't go grab them, lay hands on them like they had before uh, <laughs> because the people's attitude toward the apostles at this time was so favorable that the officers feared for their own safety if they handled them roughly or violently. In verse 27, when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you to teach in this name, command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. That's an accusation. So once again, the men are brought before the council in the large, remember we talked about the big semicircular room with two tiers of seats, the whole thing set up to just completely intimidate whoever was put on the floor in front of them. So they bring, now they bring all the, the apostles in there and they're standing there and the high priest begins by pointing out that they defied the council's previous threats. Now I want to note something here. When it talks about, they said, you intend to bring this man's blood on us. 
This is an interesting statement because this isn't the first time that that has come up. In the middle of Jesus's trial, remember it came to a point where he came before Pilate the second time and Pilate said, I can't find any fault in him. And his wife came and said, you better back off. I had a dream, all of that. Don't need to go through it all completely. But Pilate essentially, it says that he washed his hands. He washes his hands. He said um, to the multitude there, he said, I'm innocent of this man's blood. Uh, he washed his hands, said, I'm done. And the, the religious leaders, this is only three months before, two months, three months before. It wasn't very long ago that this all happened. So it's the same guys that are here before the council that were there in, in, in the praetorium or, were, as they were insisting that Jesus be killed. And their response to Pilate doing that was his blood be upon us and on our children. And now, now their guilt is apparent. They accused the apostles of being the ones who are trying to place Jesus's blood, the responsibility for his death on them. It's just an interesting play of words here. And one I don't want you to miss. It's certainly not lost on me. I look at this and I go, but wait a minute. Didn't they say we take responsibility for his blood? Yeah, they did. And now they're trying to throw the responsibility off. Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. (laughs) Again, another interesting statement contrasting that to what had happened when they were arrested the first time. (laughs) Remember, they prayed for boldness and lied to the threats. And now the council, they're, they're here before them the second time. And no longer is Peter putting a question to them as to whether they should obey God or men. Remember, Peter said, you know, you decide if we should obey you or obey God. No, this time, Peter and the others boldly proclaim they intend to do just that. We will obey God rather than men. So it's a lot stronger. Their response is a lot stronger than the first time that they stood before the council. And Peter continues in verse 30, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter essentially preaches the gospel to the Sanhedrin. Have you noticed how in the book of Acts, as we've looked at this, every time Peter opens his mouth, it's the same message. He doesn't deviate from the message. Every time he shares the gospel, he says, this Jesus whom you crucified, by the way, God raised him from the dead. And as a result, he now offers repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's available. Folks, please know this. As humans, I know me, and and I know I'm not uncommon. There's an ever-present temptation to look for the new thing, like magpies. We want to. We're attracted to the shiny object. (laughs) Yeah, we want to. We want to go with the latest trend. And if that's in fashion or clothing. Great, whatever. <laughs> I certainly don't make fashion statements, but you know, if, if it's to get on board with the, you know, I've been involved in graphic design for many years, and I see how graphic design shifts and changes, and it's to get on board with the latest trend. That's okay. However, that's in the world. Here's some free advice: when it comes to the things of God, don't do it. Avoid it. 
I look out over the religious landscape in our world, and it's sickening to see all the hype, all of the flashy stuff, all of the new trends. Stick with the simplicity of the message, the simplicity of the gospel. Offensive as it may be at times, stick with it being offensive. Stick with being the salt of the earth. That's what Jesus said. He said, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its savor, it's not even good for the dung pile. They they would throw salt to to decompose waste. This is not even good for that. And so when I see the trends, when I see the flashy stuff, when I see the entertainment venue being put forth and called worship, resist it. Don't get caught up in spiritual fads, trends, the things which hold appeal to the flesh. Be faithful to the message. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't want to have good music. That's not what I'm saying at all. We're blessed. But I am saying that when that becomes an end unto itself, that we're after good music just for the sake of having good music, rather than having it be a vehicle through which we worship our king, and our hearts are wrong. Stick with the simplicity of the gospel. It's offensive at times. Be faithful to the message and leave the results to God. Because you want to know something, you're not always going to get good results. These guys weren't. They were, there was huge fruit in these men's lives. But there was also huge opposition to what they were doing. And, and on a grand scale, we see that. But that's also what happens in our lives. As we let our light so shine before men and thereby glorify our Father who's in heaven. Great things were happening with the crowds in Jerusalem and, and, and some not so good things were happening with these apostles at the hand of the religious leaders. Verse 33, and when they heard this, after Peter spoke, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Oh, that's a nice response. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. So <laughs> Jesus uh, in his day, he had told the apostles this would happen. He said, you know, they're, they're going to bring you before councils. They're going to they're, they're put you in jail. They're going to they're put you on trial. They're going to persecute you. In John chapter 16, he says, Jesus says, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. He says, and these things they'll do to you because they've not known the Father nor me. Now, as we look at Gamaliel here, here, we see this is the first time that Gamaliel is mentioned. Now, he shows up again in Acts chapter 22, and there the Apostle Paul is standing before the people of Jerusalem, making a defense for himself, which goes really well until he uses the word Gentiles, and then the whole crowd goes berserk. I'm tempted to go there, but I, that would be a wonderful rabbit trail because it's a powerful scene. However, when, when Paul is talking about back in his days as Saul from the city of Tarsus, he said, I grew up and, uh, in this city, in Jerusalem, and I was brought up at the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, he was saying, I was educated by this very popular, very powerful, very well-educated rabbi, the same one that stands up in the council with the apostles here. And I believe that Luke intentionally does some name dropping here because Gamaliel is one of Israel's most distinguished rabbis. He was a well-known guy, very respected as a teacher of the law. 
he also evidently had great sway with the council because he orders the men out of the room so the elders could confer privately and he and, and they go okay fine he has there's no opposition to that so the men are taken out of the room and in verse 35 he says to them men of Israel take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men so Gamaliel in his wisdom he begins with a warning uh, towards uh, those on the council to be careful. He says, you be careful what you're doing here. He's seeing something the others are not. And remember, they're filled with rage. They are indignant and they want these men dead. And he goes, hold on a second, guys. <laughs> Breathe, <laughs> take a step back. This is, yeah, I, I understand, but you got to look at the big picture here. And he, he goes, and he goes big picture on them. And he says some things following that I think are fascinating and so wise that they in their rage couldn't see. In verse 36, he says, for some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be a somebody. I like that. Hey, my name's Thutis. I'm a somebody. (laughs) He claims to be a somebody. A a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So he reminds them what what (laughs) Gamaliel's doing. He's reminding the council, look, there have been two previous insurrections that totally died out, and the Sanhedrin didn't have to be involved at all. (laughs) One of them had been led by this guy named Thutis, who'd gathered a group of 400 guys. He was killed, and everybody was gone. It didn't come to anything. The other was this guy, Judas of Galilee. He was outraged by the census that Caesar Augustus had imposed on the Jews. And that was the same census that would drive this young man, Joseph, and his betrothed wife, Mary, to leave Nazareth and go down to Bethlehem so they could register for the census. That's the census he's talking about here. And he says this Judas of Galilee, he also died. His rebellion died with him. And his followers were scattered. They came, it came to nothing. And then in verse 38, Gamaliel's wisdom and integrity really come to bear. He says, and now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Leave them alone, guys. For if this plan is, or, or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. Something interesting in this. He, he plants a seed of doubt. Uh, in the room. He suggested it might just be possible that this movement was of God. (laughs) Now, he doesn't say it outright because he doesn't want to be on the same side as the apostles are at that moment. (laughs) Let's kill him. No, he doesn't doesn't go that far, but, but he's a very wise man and he picks his words very carefully and he says, you know, look, (laughs) uh, let me ask a question. What do you think? Do you think that that you can 100% rule out that this isn't a work of God? and they know he's a prominent teacher of the law. And they know that as that, and he's not sure of the answer himself. So in other words, in his own mind, there's a possibility that God was helping these followers of Jesus. In his own mind, he see, look, anybody who's honest and paying attention to what's going on in Jerusalem, what's going on in the, with the apostles, would have come to the same conclusion that Gamaliel had, that this might be something that God is doing. But the council was filled with ungodly men. They were filled with men that wanted to protect their power base. 
They were filled, it was filled with men that, that could care less about the truth. They just wanted to see to it that they, they could continue to conduct their business. We've talked about their business before. It was a racket. It was essentially the, the power brokers in Jerusalem in the first century, when this is going on, it was essentially, <laughs> it was organized crime. I mean, they had, they had a corner on the feast, the national feast. It's called Annas' Bazaar. And Annas is here in the room when they're doing this. And, and, and the money changers and, and the, the animals and all of that. When Jesus goes and turns over the tables in the temple, that was, there, that was a huge business. In today's world, it would have been worth millions. And they had a power base they were trying to protect. Don't think that they weren't. Don't think that there wasn't a lot of financial incentive for them to be the way that they were with these men and never even get to the point of looking at whether or not these things were true. So when Gamaliel stood up and spoke the way that he did, (laughs) essentially what he did is he halted um, a lynch mob. They were getting ready to kill these men. And he said, hold it, hold it, hold it. God is using him. He may not have been aware that God was using him in that moment, but God was using him in a powerful way because he's backing these men off who have the power to have these men killed. And he says, hold it. But his logic is clear. They'd be far better off to let things run their course because if this wasn't of God, then God would oppose it. And it would fall apart. Just as the previous rebellions and insurrections that he spoke of had. In verse 39, he says, but if it is of God, you can't overthrow it. Such wisdom. You know what? We face a lot of opposition. I, you know, I look out and, and we're a little church. I, I love the church at Philadelphia. He says, you know what? You're a little church, but you, you ha- and you have a little power because you're keeping the word of my testimony. Folks, we come across, we are opposed. People, people oppose me. Don't think my phone doesn't ring. And <laughs> sometimes it's red hot by the time I lay it down. Don't think that, that people are going to always pat you on the head and tell you how wonderful you are because you have shared the, the love of Christ with them. It's not the world we live in. It's increasingly hostile towards Christians, increasingly hostile towards the truth of the gospel. Verse 39, he says, but if it's of God, you can't overthrow it, lest even you be found to fight against God. So he goes on to imply that maybe, just maybe, these things were of God. And if they, intend, if they, if they were from God, then they didn't want to discover that they were on the wrong side of God in it. Not only that, he strongly cautions them that it would be a fool's errand to try to overthrow it if this was indeed from God. And that's what it would end up being. Verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, to me, it's just interesting that's in the same sentence. I agree, let's beat them up. (laughs) But that's what they do. Uh, But they were beating them because of their previous disobedience to what they had commanded them before. Don't go out there and do this. Anyway, so when they called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. Okay, that's going to go over big. We know what their attitude about that is. So Gamaliel's advice to the council had been to leave the men alone because God would stop the movement if it wasn't from him. But the high priest, the Sadducees, you got to remember they supported him in that, but, and, and, but they refused to entertain even the slightest detail with regard to Jesus' resurrection from the dead. They were not down for that. They might have agreed with him in principle, but they would never agree with him on the details, ever. 
nor were they willing to let the, they they weren't willing to let these guys go unpunished. Uh, they would be flogged for having again for disobeyed the council's previous command. So once again, they make the same threat to the apostles, commanding them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Remember when they came before him the first time, whose name are you speaking these and by whose power? They said, well, we're speaking these things in the name of Jesus, Messiah. <laughs> Great their teeth. And oh, by the way, the power that we're speaking in is the same power that raised him from the dead. <laughs> and they didn't like that either. So they, they give him this, this threat but they know at this point, they know that it's something of an idle threat. I don't want to say all the way because they will continue to have opposition. As a matter of fact, in chapter 6 and following, we get into the story of Stephen, who ends up being opposed to where, they, I mean, they take him outside of the city and kill him. They do accomplish that there. So these, these guys have not been totally defanged, but they've been seriously backed off. So verse 41 Wrapping up the chapter. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. <laughs> Again, I look at that. You know, I, I picture they've, they've just gotten beaten. They just, it's like, wow, look at my back. Yeah, praise the Lord. You know, it's like, it's just a wild scene. But these guys are filled with the Holy Spirit. They know that God is moving powerfully in them and among them and through them and to these masses of people. And they are absolutely proud of the fact that their king has had his way this day. And that included getting beaten by the bad guys. I love that. I love their attitude. They considered that they were considered worthy to be dishonored in the name of Jesus. That's an interesting sound. But they're experiencing exactly what their master had said would happen to them when he'd warned them that they would be delivered up to councils and beaten. He's, Jesus told them, you're going to get beaten for my name's sake. And it's exactly coming about just as Jesus had told them. And I, I can only imagine in their own minds, they're, they're, they're going back because the Holy Spirit is in them and he is revealing them and, and, giving, and, and revealing truth to them. And they're going back and going, I remember Jesus telling me this, this is, wow, this is what he said was going to happen. Oh, praise the Lord. This is happening. It's happening just like he said it would. So I don't have to count this as some real bad thing. I can count this as this is just part of what he said was going to take place. And now... I can go and get right back to work and go and boldly proclaim the message of the gospel and go and, and be used of God to heal these people and to bring these things about. I also think that years later, Peter, as he wrote his first epistle, when he talks about um, suffering for doing what's right in the sight of God, that that's the honorable thing to do. I, I can't help but think that as he wrote that he looked back on this event, events like it that he had experienced over a lifetime, being used of God, being the, at that time the chief apostle in Jerusalem, and knowing that life had been difficult, knowing that Jesus had prophesied even his death. I, I can only imagine as he pens that epistle, as you, you look at First and Second Peter, and you see the spiritual maturity and the wisdom and the depth and this is the same goofy guy that jumped in the lake. This is the same guy that said, no, I don't know him three times, cursed the little girl, the whole thing. This is the same guy that, you know, open mouth, insert foot, and then think about it. You look at the depth of him, of this man. You look at what God had done in him. And I'll tell you what, folks, it gives me hope <laughs> that God wants to, to work and to do and to will according to his good pleasure in me and in you.
last verse, and daily in the temple and in every house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Oh man, they do. They go right back to work. And God had used Gamaliel to back off the council. They're not sending the cops after him anymore. They're out there doing what they're doing because they're now they're thinking, well, what if this is of God? What if, you know, we're going to go against, we need to be really careful. They're heeding Gamaliel's advice and God is using it for his glory and to further the, the reach of the church. These guys are boldly continuing the work that God had set before them. Now, I want to also notice here in verse 42, Luke's emphasis is no longer upon the signs and wonders, but upon teaching and preaching. Uh, talking about to the, the one to whom the signs and wonders point. He says, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, here in verse 42. Now, they'd been involved in the work of evangelism. I mean, that's what they're doing every day. They're out evangelizing, preaching the gospel as the crowds have gathered. And the word preaching is, the Greek word is, is where we get the word evangelize. It's evangelion, I think is how it's pronounced. The word teaching here is a different word. Um, as the numbers of new converts grew and the church is growing, it's, it's exploding at this point. Expanding the work of discipleship was now becoming a really important thing because you, you and folks, it's never a good idea to just lead somebody to Christ. You carbon in your Bible. You know, that's not what we're about. You know, I, I, I love that in some of the evangelistic crusades that I've been uh, either remotely or, or indirectly involved with, that there's always aftercare that takes place because discipleship must come into play. You don't just get somebody saved and throw them in a bin. You, you tell them that there's a new life available, and then you have to tell them what that new life looks like. And that's what's coming about here. The church is growing. It's exploding. That's why it's beginning now to go into homes. And that's what he says here. He says, uh, daily in the temple and in every house. Because discipleship. Yeah, they've been preaching to the lost. And that's, if you look at the difference, you want a, a, just a rudimentary understanding of the difference between teaching and preaching, it's this. You preach to the lost, you teach those who are saved. And, and that's essentially what's going on here. They're doing both. They're preaching. So they still have these large crowds. They're still going to the temple, but they're also teaching now the things of the kingdom and the things of the king to the people who are coming. That's why we do what we do here. Preach and teach. Give you the gospel if you don't know the Lord and teach you God's word if you do. That's how we end up being balanced in our relationship with God and balanced in our walk with God. I love that we take our cues from the book of Acts because it's all here. I want to close with a thought, and it's this. I've, I've talked to people before that, that say, well, you know, my gifts are really more along the lines for within the church. And I understand that. I get that. But folks, that should never negate the reality that all of us have been charged with the Great Commission. All of us have been given what the Bible refers to as the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? It means that we have been specifically called to reconcile a lost, dying, screwed up, upside down, sinful world to Jesus, the Messiah, what he says here. That's what we've been called to do. And I'm not saying that to lay a head trip on anybody, but it's part of what we've been called to do. Again, Jesus said, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a bushel. He says, you let that light shine. Come what may, 
Because sometimes it ain't going to go so good. And sometimes you're going to walk away going, Lord, I am just so blessed that you actually used me to bring the light of the gospel to that person's life. Lord, I am so blessed that I see my kids now taking up the baton of faith. Lord, I'm so, and you can just fill in the blank with the ways that God will bless that. But, but you know what? These guys are blessed even when it doesn't go well. And that's part of what I want to encourage you on. Don't have your eyes on the results. God consistently causes us and calls us and, and compels us to be faithful. It's about being faithful in the process, not about the results. And when, when we get into that mindset, you know, it, it doesn't hurt quite as much. Yeah, it still bugs us when people come against us. Yeah, we're human and it, it hurts. But we're able to wear that and, and to say, you know what, Lord, I gave it my best. I shared the gospel with that person that they reject it. Now that's up. That's on them. It's not on me. So understand, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation because this world is, is getting worse by the day. I, I look forward. I had lunch with another pastor this last week and we were talking about how we both, we believe that time is very, very short. And praise God. I mean, if he doesn't come for another, another hundred years, then that's just what he does. I, I love the, the, the thought that live your life as though he's coming today or tomorrow. Plan like he's coming in a hundred years, but live as though he's coming today. That's what it is to be ready. That's what Jesus, where he put the emphasis on. He never said, you know, this is when I'm coming back. He said, I want you to be ready when I do. And that's how we do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, uh, just this wonderful chapter in Acts where there's just so much instruction, so much to glean, so much application to our lives. As the Lord, I pray for each one here, each one online that's watching, speak to us. Find hearts that are yielded to the moving, the working of your Holy Spirit Lord, if there's an aspect of self that's been on the throne that you want to knock off so that you can further invade our lives, and I pray, Lord, that, that each one would give you the permission to do that. That, it, Lord, it would be your will in my life, not mine. And so, Father, we just commit ourselves afresh to you and to your purposes in our life. We pray that you would work in us that eternal weight of glory, Lord, we, we can't wait. As, as one of the guys here in the church says, I can't wait to meet you. And uh, we look forward to that day. And in the meantime, Lord, I pray that you would use us, that we would be poured out, and that you would get the glory. We give ourselves afresh to you in Jesus' name.